Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Luke um, chapter 1 verse 37. This was after Gabriel came and declared to um, Zacharias and to Mary what was coming with the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist. And at the end of that, Gabriel said, For with God nothing will be impossible. And I went through what that is. It's, it's the uh, compound word, upas rhema, which is an unusual structure. It's only used two places, here in Luke 137 and in Matthew 1720. And in Matthew 1720, Jesus has been dealing with this child that was demon-possessed, and the father was distressed, and um, the disciples could not cast the demon out. And after they all left, Jesus did free the child, and when he pulled off, as was their custom, when he pulled off with the um, disciples, they asked him and said, Lord, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said, because of your unbelief. And it's interesting, one of the other accounts of this says that this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. And everybody always wants to, to put that over on the demon. Certain demons will only come out if you're prayed up and fasted up. And that's not what that refers to. What takes prayer and fasting to cast out is your unbelief. And that's what Jesus said here in, in verse 20. Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing, upas rhema, nothing revealed to you, will be impossible for you. But, but the question is, when you take this all in context, where is our focus? Are we focusing on what God says or are we focusing on our circumstances and the everyday problems of life? Uh, uh, Paul said in Hebrews 12.2, this is right after the, the, the chapter 11, which was the, the whole uh, long heroes of faith. And he says that we are encompassed by a great cloud of witnesses. And how, what should be the end of us knowing that we have all of these people in heaven watching us? He says, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus' eyes are on us, but where are our eyes? His grace is always abounding to us because we are always the center of His attention. You know, it's, I've said it, and it didn't come from me. I heard another pastor say it. But you go into, the, into God's kitchen, he, my picture's on his refrigerator. Why? Because that's where you put your important people. You go to our house, you're, there's, well, first of all, it's hard to see our refrigerator. I don't even know what color it is, because it's just covered, solid. Every exposed place has a magnet with a picture either of our kids or our grandkids. And I love you all, but ain't one of you on my refrigerator. 
And guess what? You're probably not going to make the cut because, you know, it's, it's hard to take the three-year-old pictures of our grandkids and our kids off. We just keep piling new ones on top. As, you, as they age and you get new ones, you pile them on top. That's what God is. God, we are the entire focus of His attention. He has done everything that He has ever done. He has done because and for us. Now I know an unbeliever and, and materialists who don't believe in the spirit realm will say that's the most arrogant thing. You think that this little blue planet in, in, in this tiny little solar system in the midst of this huge Milky Way, which is one's a, one of hundreds of thousands of, of uh, huge star clusters throughout the universe, you think that everything focuses on this little blue orb? No. <coughs> It focuses on the people on this little blue orb. Everything that He has done is for us. Just for us. But where do we focus on? I'll guarantee you for most of us, unless you're working really hard look to look unto Jesus, your focus is on your bills or the circumstance or the, the, the need that this person has, or the need that that person has, or the need that we have. Now, we do have needs, and God wants us to believe Him to meet those needs, but He wants to meet our needs so that we will become Him in the situation and then we can go about meeting other people's needs, and in doing that, we can say, this is what Jesus provided for me and told me to provide it for you because you need to know Jesus. There is no better way. That, you know, every missionary in the world will tell you it's hard to preach to a person who's hungry. If their belly's empty, they don't want to hear anything except the dinner bell. But you feed their belly and then they're open to the gospel. You look at him and say, this came because Jesus provided it. It has nothing to do with me. has nothing to do with what a great guy I am. It has to do that Jesus wants to know you and wants to be a part of your life. That's the reason we exist. That's the reason we're here. But we have to keep our eyes on Him to the point where we, we can get a revelation of how important we are to Him and how important He is to us. Now obviously we know without God I can do nothing. But then when our circumstances come in and start screaming, we forget that He's even in the room. I guarantee you, if, if you look back every time you have done something where you knew going into it I probably shouldn't be doing this, at that moment where you stepped off into sin, you had no conscious awareness that Jesus is going here with me to do this. You deceived yourself thinking, well, I'm alone. Nobody sees this. He does, and He's right there with you, calling out to you, saying, don't do this. It's going to set you back. It's going to cost. Sin always has a price. 
So how do we, how do we get, get, keep the, our focus on him? How do we do this? How do we stay out of unbelief? We do it by, by realizing that we need to take the information that we get out of this book and we need to move from information to revelation. That's what Jesus or Gabriel said in, in Luke 1.37 and Jesus said in Matthew 17.20. It, when you get a revelation, there's nothing revealed that doesn't have the power available to make it happen in your life. But we have to get that revelation. And the only way we do that is we take this word, the written word, the logos. It's, the root of it is the, word, the Greek word lego, which I love because in our minds, when you say lego, you think of those little demonic plastic cubes that lay out on the floor that you always find in the middle of the night. Your kids can pick up everything in the world. There will always be one Lego somewhere that will just, it, it may be in the corner, but it will migrate out into your path if you get up at midnight without the lights on. But those Legos, part of the reason they named them that is you take them and you snap them together and you build something. Now, when you buy the package of Legos, there's a picture and there are instructions. Oh my Lord, I, I remember the look my son gave me when we, we bought our oldest grandson the Millennial Falcon. The box was a good two feet by two feet and maybe six to eight inches thick. And he knew, I'm going to be building this stupid thing for the next six months. And he was, the two of them. Now it was a great time for them together. But there, you had to put it together. Put, today, the box is gone, but there is a box somewhere, a plastic box that has all these Legos just thrown in it. And those boys, all three of them, our granddaughter doesn't really, well, she'll build dolls out of Legos where they build weapons. But they have built a thousand things out of those blocks that the creators never thought of. That's what the Word does. It gives us the building blocks. It's our words, our logos, his logos that we take and we structure our life. That's why it's not in my notes, but I've preached on it before. Out of Hebrews 11, it says that, in, I think it's in verse 3 or 4, it's after it talks about the elders, it says, And the world were framed by the word. That that. The Greek word there for worlds is aeon, meaning ages. It's not talking about our planet. It's talking about our world, the worlds of those elders. They took the word that Jesus spoke to each one of them, and they assembled their world from the revelation that God gave them. This is what your calling is. This is what you're supposed to do with your life. They took that revelation and built a life. David became the king of Israel because God met with that shepherd boy and said, you're going to be king. And then, then Samuel came along and anointed him and reinforced that. And David took that revelation and built the kingdom of Israel out of that revelation that God had given him. I'm king, this is how we do it. And God added to it and added to it and added to it. And David just kept building and building. Now, he wasn't a perfect builder. He got off more than once. 
But when he got off and God called him, he got right back on the path. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. He pursued God. He pursued that. And he messed up and messed up and messed up. He was an adulterer, very possibly a rapist. If you read behind the, the, line, the, the, behind the words and get back in the details, Bathsheba was a very young girl, home alone, and he's the king. It, 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 there are several indications in that story that David, that she didn't have a lot of choice. Now, she may have, I don't know. But he was at least an adulterer, very possibly a rapist, and most assuredly a murderer. And yet God says, he's a man after my own heart. Why? Because no matter how bad he fouled up, he would, when God called him on it, he'd get up off of his knees. He'd say, Lord, you're right. That's me. Forgive me. And then get right back on the horse and start building again. That's what he's called us to do. That's what he said in James 1.21. Receive with meekness the implanted word. We need to take this logos and plant it in us and plant it in us. You plant it and then you water it and you water it. You bring every thought captive. We looked at that, 2 Corinthians 10.5. You have to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You bring it obedient to His Word. Not to anything else. And then you, you learn how to walk away from worry. We looked That was the last thing we looked at last week. Matthew 6, verse 31. He said, Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. That's my top priority. I don't care about anything but your kingdom, Lord. And I will discard, I will change, I will alter anything I have to in my life to get your kingdom. That's all I want. I want your kingdom manifested. I want your kingdom manifested. You start praying that prayer. That'll change your life. Lord, I don't care what it is. I don't care how, what, what has to change in my life. And things will have to change. Dean said it this morning. We all need to change. And if you don't think so, then we're going to pray a prayer of deliverance here at the end. You can come up and get prayed for because we all need to change. None of us are established and none of us have made it. We may be on the train, but we still got a lot of ways to go before we get to the station. And I need to make sure that I'm on the right train because there are a thousand different trains all heading in the same direction. Which one has God called me to be on? Where is my influence? Where is my impact supposed to be? You know people I don't know. I know people that you don't know. That's your train. It's not like I'm, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there are a lot of different ways to Jesus. I'm saying each of our lives is individual and you need to figure out what, how God wants you to work this, this same plan that I'm working in my life. How does it work in your life? And it will be slightly different because you're a different person. You have different needs. You have different requirements. You are going to have different things put on you or different situations that, will, will, uh, that you will have to deal with and it's going to take a slightly different anointing a slightly different revelation for you to deal with your situation than it does for me to deal with my situation. But the great news is, no matter what the situation you face, there's always an anointing that God has available for you to get to that 
through that situation. We, one of the scriptures that, that has become more alive to Gina and I both, uh, Psalm 133, prayer for unity. It says that is where God has commanded the blessing. Now, unity is important, it's vital, but this is the, the big take that I get from that. If you, if you reduce that down, and this is, I'm using it as a metaphor, if the blessing is at the point of unity, then I have to find out where is the unity. If unity's here, I can be living for God as best I can, and if I'm over here, I'm not in the blessing. Unity means I'm not going to argue over stupid stuff. There are a few things in the Bible that I, I, I will stand and say, if you don't believe this, you can't make it to heaven. That's the only thing I will ever debate or argue about. And even in that, I'm not going to get, you can argue without getting argumentative. It's possible. Not easy, but it's possible. <coughs> but. For everything in my life, there is a spot, there is a place, there is a position that God's blessing, He said, if you will do this, John, this is where my blessing is. I believe in confession, I believe your words are important, but I can stand for hours and confess and declare that I am, I am, I am highly favored and greatly blessed. And if He's called me to be blessed over here at X, and I'm standing in Y, he's blessing me, but I'm not receiving any of it because I'm in the wrong spot. I not only need to believe that he wants to bless me, that I am blessed, but then I need to get to the spot where my blessing is. And that's going to be different for each of us. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Mark 2, verse 21 and 22. F familiar, very familiar Scripture to all of us. Mark chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus says, When one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece, or excuse me, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. What's the point of this? Well, I'm going to focus in on the second one, the wine. For, for one thing, if you have a new wineskin, the leather is supple. It's, it's, it's flexible. It can stretch. An old wineskin, the leather tends to get cracked and get dry, and you can't, you can't stretch it much, or it'll tear. Now, the great thing is, if you have an old wineskin and you want to get it, make it new, you just take oil and rub it in and give it time, and then rub some more oil and give it some time, and you can, you can transform an old wineskin into a new wineskin. Now, in Jesus' comment here, though, what he's, what he's referring to, I believe, is the new birth experience. He's saying, if you, need, if you try to take my principles, what I'm telling you, the, how the new birth works and how you live it out, and you try to live it out 
under the law without being born again, it ain't going to work. In fact, it will mess you up. But if you get born again, and then you will put your wine, your life, into this new wineskin, then what you're going to see is things are going to begin to change. That's the whole point here. They are, when you put, put juice into a wineskin, the, the whole purpose of that is to give it time so it can ferment and change. It changes from grape juice to, to wine. And it is different at the end of the process than it is at the beginning. Now, let me caution you, because I know we are, by and large, teetotalers, alcohol, and in a day of addiction, you need to just leave alcohol alone. Period. It, 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 I can drink, I can have an occasional drink, it will never bother me. Alcohol is not a problem for me. But as a pastor, as a, forget being a pastor, as a Christian, if I'm going to deal with people that have addictions and they know I occasionally drink, I've just opened the door for them to feel uh, the ability that they can have a drink. And if they have a problem and they re-enter their addiction because of something I did, then I'm responsible. That's why Paul said, to me nothing is sin, but not, not all things are profitable. But the whole point of this passage is not about whether you should drink grape juice or wine, whether you should have wine with communion or grape juice with communion. That's not the point. The point is, are you going to get changed through this new birth experience? When that happens, the first step in making wine is you have to take grapes and you crush them. And you are going to have to be willing to allow God to crush your life. Now let me throw this proviso out. And I've said this before, but this, this needs to be repeated often. And shout it from the rooftops. What God, what Jesus suffered, and He'd had many sufferings. We just read about that during our prayer in, in Isaiah. He was rejected. He was despised by man. He suffered many things. But all of His sufferings came down to two categories. Things He suffered as our example and things He suffered as our substitute. Sin, sickness, poverty, all of those things He suffered as our substitute, so we don't have to suffer with those. But what he suffered as our example, being despised, being spit on, being tormented, being persecuted, he suffered all of those things as an example so that when we run into those same problems, we don't think, oh my God, nobody's ever had it as bad as me. Yes, they have. And worse. I guarantee you, I can take it. I don't care how bad your suffering's been. And I'll put my suffering up with, against pretty much anybody here. But if you take the worst of us, I can take you right now within 30 minutes and show you kids, uh, teenagers, adults that have had it much worse than you have. And I don't even, that's not even going to a third world country. Everybody suffers. That's the price of being a human being. But we have to suffer through those and allow God to crush us. Perfect example, I just mentioned it, David. He got off into sin. 
That was not God's will. But when God came to him and said, David, that was wrong. That was sin. David had a choice. Believe Nathan or, or reject Nathan. Saul had the same choice. When Samuel came to Saul, Saul made excuses. And before it was done, he made a statue to himself so that everybody would be impressed with him because he was king. And God said, you're done. I'm ripping the kingdom out of your family, out of your lineage. Not only are you going to suffer, but your son's going to suffer, your grandkids are going to suffer, and the nation will suffer forever. Because of your sin, Saul, sin has consequences. I'll be honest with you. I deal with things in my life, the root of some of the sins that, that are my weaknesses are with my grandfather and my great-grandfathers. It goes back that far. The great news is, though, the blessing. I've, I can go back 10 generations, and, and, my, and you go back 10 generations, you've got a lot of grandparents. Any of them that did anything for God, I get the reward of their obedience. I only go back four or five generations to get the consequences of, my, of those grandfathers or grandmothers' disobedience. Obedience transfers to a lot more generations than disobedience does. That's God's grace. But we have to be willing to allow our lives to be crushed, to be altered. And then the Holy Spirit will come in and He will start to change us. That's what happens during this whole process of fermentation. Those little yeast cells come in and they eat the sugar and they release carbon dioxide and they release alcohol and, and some other things. That's why that wineskin swells. Because there's a lot of carbon dioxide in there. What's that mean to us? That means when God starts changing things, you're going to be under some pressure. <laughs> and it's going to stretch you. And it's not going to feel good. And you're going to be tempted to say, Get thee behind me, Satan. And you're going to be talking to God. This can't be God doing this. Oh, yes, it can. He will tell you to make some changes and man, the price will be so high that you will say, I can't do that. And he'll say, well, here's the deal. You've got road A and you've got road B. Road A, this is where your blessing is. Road B is easier, but I ain't blessing it. And we look at it and think, yeah, I'm taking B. Why am I going to climb that high hill? That path is narrow, it's rocky, there's a cliff on it. Every once in a while, I, 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 I'm on YouTube, or not YouTube, but Facebook some for the church. And I, there was one on there the other day, a picture, and it was somewhere in China. And these people had to walk like half a mile. And I'm telling you, they're on a six to eight inch ledge. And this is the only road to get where they want to go. And you look over the side of that ledge and it's about a thousand feet to the bottom. You know what my decision is when I come to that road? There ain't no way. I don't have to go there that bad. I'm not doing it. I've seen others where there's huge gorges and there's a little rope bridge. And you have to walk across that rope bridge. It's like, nope, nothing on the other side of that that requires my effort. I'm not going. Now, if God says, cross that rope bridge... Because that's where your blessing is. And I will be with you and you will get across. But my fear of heights, this is my unbelief right here. I don't like heights. 
I don't even like when, when you watch movies and somebody peeks over the ledge, I have to close my eyes. I don't like that feeling. I don't like, Shelby was doing something in here one day and, and they needed, they had, he had a huge stepladder up to the very top of the roof when we were stringing wire and he said, just go up there and don't pull it, just kind of make sure it doesn't get hung up. I went up one time and when I came down, I said, Shelby, that was it. You got the one time out of me. I ain't ever going up that ladder again. Because I'm telling you, just a, a, an eighth of an inch sway. And I had visions of me being impaled on one of these chairs coming off there. I don't like it. But I got a choice if God says go across that rope bridge. I can go across and believe Him for my safety. Because if He's told me to go, it's got to be safe. And that's where I got to go to get my blessing. The pressure's on, buddy. The pressure is on. Am I going to, to, to not go and stay in unbelief because of what I see? Or am I going to walk over there? Well, if I get a revelation, if I look across and I see the end of the rainbow and I see the pot of gold, I know it's there. I can muster the courage. Even if I don't see it, if I know it's there, God will give me the courage. That's what His anointing does. That's what His blessing does. It's, it's transforming from the old to the new. And it is not a fun process at all. Now, what do we have to do to get here? You're, you're there in Mark 2. Turn over to Mark 4. And this is the parable of the sower. And I've seen this a little differently. And I don't know that I'll get into everything that I've, I've seen out of this in the last few days. But I'm starting to, as I'm growing older, God's showing me things. And sometimes it does take a little bit of time and a lot of study before things start to become clear. But in, in verse 13 of Mark 4... Jesus told the parable of the sower to the multitudes, and then he, the, the disciples pulled off and asked him. They said, Lord, you're, you're going to have to explain this when I don't get it. And you know, there had to have been times when Jesus had to, he just grabbed his head and thought, Dear Lord, this is who I'm going to entrust my church to. And he would have grabbed his head and had that thought. In fact, he may have had that thought because he was tempted in every way that we were. But in every one of those, he had a revelation of what it was going to be like after he came out of the grave. And not only that, but after he sent the Holy Spirit to anoint these people and see their lives transformed, to see them born again. They're going to be brand new creatures, and they're not just going to have an anointing on a dead person. They're going to have an anointing on a new living creature. And they're going to be empowered by by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and they're going to be able to walk out and change the world. Book of Acts tells us when they showed up in one place, they said, these are the guys that have turned the world upside down. That's quite a testimony. Now, he's going to explain to them how this Word works. How do I go from information to revelation? Well, let me, before I go any farther, let me, let me give you one little hint to know when you're at revelation. You know you're at the revelation stage when your life changes in that area. 
If you haven't changed, you haven't got a revelation. Because Jesus, Gabriel said it, told Gabriel to, God told Gabriel to say it. And then he, Jesus himself said it. Nothing, no thing is impossible when you get the revelation because the power to do it is with it. It's getting the revelation that, that taps you into the power to walk that revelation out. So revelation automatically is going to, if you truly get a revelation, you're going to have, now, let me throw this proviso in. We always have free will. You can get a revelation and decide not to go there. To me, it's like I don't understand how people do that. But then I don't understand how Lucifer, who was the chief praise and worship leader in heaven, saw God in His full glory and then decided one day I can get higher than that. I mean, that, that really, you got to smack your head and say, wow, how could anybody have been that deceived? But he was. It was a self-deception, and it cost him everything. But when we have the revelation, God provides the power and the ability to walk that out and to see your life change. But you know that you're, you're walking in a revelation when you see change happen. If you don't see change happening... You're doing something wrong. Either you don't have the revelation yet, or you haven't tapped into it. You're, do, you're going about it wrong. That's what the parable of the sower is about. Verse 13, speaking to the disciples, Jesus, He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This is the key to understanding what Jesus is talking about. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. Now, I want, I've dealt before about the, the difference between Logos and Rhema. Logos is the written word, which has power available to it. But Rhema represents what is revealed to you or what, what you actually can grasp. It's that experience we've all had if you've been a Christian very long. You read the Bible and suddenly the light bulb goes on over your head and you see that verse different than you've seen it before. That's the power of revelation. Everywhere in this parable, or in this explanation, where it says word, it's logos, not rhema. So he's talking about the written word, the word that you don't have a revelation of. But it still changes. It still has power. Don't think that, that you can get to revelation without going through logos. It's like years ago... You had this, this saying that went around, and it, and it was an excuse to not have to, you know, and it was an excuse that gave me permission to, um, and I want to be careful, because if, if you have to work, and you can't be a full-time mom or a full-time dad at home with your kids, don't come under condemnation, okay? But there was an excuse for people that didn't want to stay home just because they didn't like being around their kids. And believe me, for all, and next week we're going to celebrate motherhood. But believe me, there's a lot of mothers out there, they don't, like, they don't like their kids if that means they have to be with them all the time. They just, they don't. They'd rather go to work and just have, be a part-time parent. But we used to have this, this excuse, well, it's not the quantity of time, it's the quality of time that's important. And that is true. The, the lie in the middle of that thing is, though, you can't get the quality of time without the quantity of time because you never know when the quality comes. 
The quality will just burst out in the middle of quantities. You just talk to your kids, you're doing everyday experiences, you're doing everything stuff, and all of a sudden, man, you have a moment. Same way with, with husband and wife, same way with any relationship. If you want to have quality time with a person, you're going to have to devote quantities of time because you never know when that quality is going to hit. Because we don't exactly understand what we did to do it. But it's the same thing with the Word. God, I need a revelation. I need a revelation. Well, He says, okay, feed on it. Eat it. Huge portions of it. Study it. Read it. Evaluate it. Go over it. Meditate on it. Remember, we looked at Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 through 9. Four verses. And three times in those four verses, he said, you need to meditate on the Word. But then he also said, you need to be, have great courage. Why? Because the Word's going to change you, and you're going to have to have some courage to do some of the things. You get a revelation that the Lord wants you to do it. But you only get that when you just devour it and devour it and devour it and devour it. Because you never know when the revelation will come. If you just get in it every once in a while thinking, God, I need a revelation today. Well, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. All right, let's go back. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. That's God. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that is sown in their hearts. I, I, I've, I've avoided Hugh Ross. If you don't know who Ross, Hugh Ross is, go on YouTube sometime and just listen to him. He's an a, um, astrophysicist, and he scratches that science itch that I always have. But I, haven't, I just haven't had time to listen to a lot of his things. But I, I, I listened to him a little bit this week. And I heard him make this, this statement, and he, it wasn't referring directly to this. But um, he made the statement that he, occasionally he will go somewhere where he knows the whole crowd is going to be hostile towards him. He, he addresses occasionally, at least three or four times a year, he will go into a setting where it's advertised these are atheist, atheistic-based scientists, that he's going to speak to them about God and how God created the universe. Now, that's like Daniel walking into the lion's den. He always starts his, his presentation with this, this question, though. He said, I want to know, and I want you to be honest with me, he said, if I can show you proof from the Bible and from science that there is a distinct, not just a possibility, but a probability that God exists and He created the universe, are you willing to change what you believe if I will present you with the evidence? These are all scientists. Science is based on, you show me the facts, I'll change what I believe. And he said, never has he had more than one-third of the crowd hold their hand up. So two-thirds of those people are there to listen to him with the indication, I don't care what he says, I ain't changing my mind. Now that does not mean that God can't move on them and supernaturally do a work. But when you close your mind off, that's, what, that's what's happening right here in verse 15. They hear, but immediately Satan takes the word. They hear the truth and they get a little glimpse of light. You get a little flicker. But then that thought comes, no, no, no. If I believe that, I have to believe there's a God. 
Do you know the, the, the number one thing that, that um, atheistic, materialist, and by materialist I mean people who don't believe in a supernatural realm, the number one thing that they fight against is the Big Bang Theory. They hate it for one reason. You have to have a creator if you have a Big Bang. Now most Christians say, oh, Big Bang, that's evil. No, Big Bang is a proof that God exists. If you have a creation event, which is the Big Bang just means that's the scientist's way of describing when God created the universe. If you have that, you have to have someone outside that universe that created that bang. And they fight that and fight it and fight it. Why? Because they don't, they will not say there is a God or there is anything outside of our universe. If I can't see it, feel it, touch it, smell it, it doesn't exist. That's uh, Satan immediately taking that word out of their heart. There's no hope for them. They've stopped the process of God dealing with them and they've rejected it. And you do that enough times, God will leave you alone. Verse 16, though, tells us the next group. These likewise are the ones sown on the stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, so endure only for a time. These are the people who hear the gospel, and they get, they get a little glimpse of it, and it's like, yes, that's the answer to my problem. But they're like the, the guys in Acts that were, were the Jewish exorcists, and they were going through an exorcism, and they wanted to cast the devil out of this guy, and they had seen Jesus have results, they'd seen Paul have results, so they spoke to the demon, and they said, I cast you out in the name of, of Jesus that Paul preaches. And the demon looked at him and said, Well, Jesus I know, Paul I know, I don't know who you are. And the guy jumped up and just whipped him, stripped him naked and ran him out of the house. And it was like five on one. But demons are powerful. That's what, that's what happens here. They, they hear it and, and they, they, they have, they're, they're happy to hear it. Those exorcists heard about Jesus and they heard about Paul. And it was like, oh, this is the secret. But they didn't internalize it. They didn't take the root into themselves. They didn't say, I want to know this Jesus. And, it's, and I'm, I'm, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not disagreeing with what Gina said earlier about testimonies. But one of the things you have to worry about or deal with when testimonies is don't put your faith in the testimony. Take what the person is testifying about and find out where that testimony come from. And it always comes back to the Word. And I'm reminded, Brother Hagen told the story. God raised him up off a sickbed. And there was a guy that was in the hospital years. Brother Hagen had, had shared his testimony. They had written a book. And this guy's in the hospital. He's had a heart attack. His heart's damaged and he's laying in bed. And the doctors are saying, you just need to rest. And he took Brother Hagen's book and he read it. And he said, well, if God would heal this man, he'll heal me. And he got up out of that bed and walked around the bed just like Brother Hagen did. He took four steps and dropped dead and they buried him within three days. Why didn't God do for him what he did for Brother Hagen? Because he didn't read the details. Kenneth Hagen spent weeks and weeks meditating on Mark 11, 23, and 24 until he got a revelation. This is for me right now. 
And when he got a revelation that this is God speaking to me now, then he exercises faith. And when he exercises faith, God told him, now the way for you to get your healing and to seal it is get up out of this bed because well people walk. They're not in the bed in the middle of the day. And he got up and walked around the bed and he was healed. The testimony is great, but you have to know how he got to that point and then duplicate what he did to get to the point. It may not be Mark eleven twenty three. It may be another verse. But you just read until God enlightens you about this verse. This meets your need. And then when you find one that you get a little light on, eat it again and again and again and again and keep meditating on it and keep eating it and don't read it and say, well, yeah, I got that. I know that. No, you don't. If you can say that, you ain't got it. It's when you, you get it when you want to jump up and scream to the world, my God, have you seen what this says? This is God talking to me. You got it. Now, he may tell you to, to proclaim that, but he's also going to tell you now, this is how you walk that out and see that result in your life. And you're going to have to walk it out and you're going to have to do something about it for that to work for you. These people never personalized it. It always just became, well, that's what my preacher said. That's what so-and-so I listened to on, on Christian TV said. That's what, you know, that's what this person teaches. I read his book. I agree with him. But have you read the book? Have you gone back to the foundation scriptures that he used and just ate them and ate them until it, you got the revelation that they got? If you haven't, then it will, when the pressure comes, notice, afterwards when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. That's that juice going through the process and suddenly the pressure comes on. There's tribulation. There's, there's a, a, a persecution. Something comes up and the pressure's on and it's like, I guess this didn't work. They said it did, but not for me. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I know of one particular man. I'm not going to name his name. But he, for years, he was in the healing camp. He had a revelation of it. His wife got cancer. They prayed for her. They laid hands on her. They believed, and she died of cancer. And he got up in his pulpit, and he said, this, That is not for today. Why? Because I couldn't make it work for my wife. I don't know why his wife didn't receive her healing, but it doesn't change what the Word says. The Word is true. Whether I can apply it to myself, it's why, and, and believe me, we, we have too many uh, leaders in the church that fall. Way too many. One's too many. But if you are devastated when a leader in the church falls, your faith is in that leader and not in this Word. Leaders will fail you. You stick around me, around me long enough, I will make you mad. I will insult you. I will do something to hurt your feelings. I guarantee it. Well, how do you know that? Because this is woman I love more than anybody else in the entire universe. I would die for her. And I hurt her all the time. Don't try to. Well, why do you? Because I'm an idiot. Every husband in here, this is where the amen goes, ladies. This is not where the elbow goes. 
But if, we, if, if it doesn't work, it's not the Word's fault, it's my fault. I just haven't applied it correctly. Now, verse 18. These are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the Word, and the cares of this world... Terrible translation again. This is the Greek word aeon. It means age. It's not talking about the cares of the earth. It's talking about the cares of this age that we live in. The church age. The end times. And don't get freaked out about that term, the end times. The end times started when Jesus came out of the grave. And they will last until Jesus comes back for His church. It's a 2,000 year period so far. But it is also like labor pains. The closer you get to the end, the tougher they get. The shorter the duration and the harder they come. And I've never been through them, but I've had more than one scar in my hands from when other people were squeezing tight, draw blood, and look at you like I will kill you if this ever happens again. Why? Because it's not pleasant to go through labor pains. That's why 2 Timothy 3 one says that in the, end, in the last days, perilous times will come. There are times of great stress. There are times of great pressure. Why? Because the enemy knows this. God's just about to give birth to the, a brand new creation. And he's doing everything he can to fight it. And just like natural childbirth, it gets hard. But notice here in verse 19, these people heard the word, but the cares of this age the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things, entering in, choke the Word. These are people who, the Word was planted. Remember we saw James. You have to receive with meekness the implanted Word of God. But you can choke it out to where it doesn't bear fruit. The, in, in my opinion, and this is my humble opinion, you can disagree, I may be wrong. Verse 14 those people never got born again. Verse 16 and 17, they never got born again. Verse 18 and 19, these people are born again, but they're living just like the world. Why? Because the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things have choked the Word to where it, you bear no fruit. It's the fruit. We, as, as modern American not American Christians, we have this mindset in the American church that the goal of the new birth, the goal of living the, Christ, the, the Christian life or the Christ-like life is to live free of sin. That's just the entrance. Of course that's true. The goal of the Christian um, life is to bear fruit. And you go over to Galatians We'll, well, we'll go over there in a minute. It says, verse, well, Galatians 5.22. We're coming back to, to Mark here. But Galatians 5.22, Paul says there, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, keep in mind, when you look at a Greek manuscript, you either have uppercase or lowercase manuscripts. That means every letter is either all uppercase or all lowercase. There are no spaces. There are no punctuation marks. So when you read a Greek manuscript, you just have to imagine English where you take and you start typing your words 
And there are no spaces between the words. There's no periods. You do not capitalize the beginning of a sentence. You do not capitalize personal names. You just write a string of letters with no gaps and no punctuation. And you've got to figure out where the words breaks are. That's how Greek is written. The New Testament is written. So when Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love and the New King James and the King James translators put a comma there, just as easily they, put a, they could have put a colon there where they said the fruit of the Spirit is love, agape. And that love is manifested as joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, it is not an exhaustive list. It's these kinds of things. Against such, against such there is no law. In other words, God says, this is the stuff I ought to be seeing in your life. I ought to be seeing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and stuff like that. And keep bearing it, and keep bearing it, and keep bearing it. Now, how do I know if I'm not walking in the Spirit? Well, you back up to verse 16. Or, excuse me, not 16, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They're adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, and it goes on. But at the end, he said, against such, or those that practice such things, again, it's not an exhaustive list, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to walk in my blessings. That's why we're there in Mark 4. We're coming back to it. Um, we're going to come back to verse 20 because that's where we need to live. But, but Jesus said, Matthew, let me just quote it, Matthew 7, 20, By their fruits you will know them. Are you demonstrating the works of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit? That will gauge how much word you're taking in and how much revelation you're walking out. What kind of fruit is your life bearing? And, and, and let me correct some faulty um, theology. We're not called to be fruit inspectors. Other than I need to examine the fruit of my life. Jesus said, why are you, why are you picking on the speck in your neighbor's eye when you've got a plank in your eye? I, when I get my life perfectly lined up, then I'll be with your house and I'll start in on you. Well, no, when I get mine perfectly lined up, then I'll go inspect my wife. And when I get her straightened out, well, rapture will have happened by then. It'll happen long before I ever get mine straightened out. <laughs> no, I'll never get there. Now, let's go back to Mark 4, verse 20. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Notice on all of these, it's not the word that changes, it's the ground that changes. And the ground is your heart. And the kind of heart you have is the kind of heart you decide to have. You decide whether it's a path or rocky or, or choked with thorns. And you can make it good ground. You hear the word and you accept it and you bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100. That doesn't mean there's that, that you know, I'll be a 30 fruit person. Gina's going to be a 60 and Kim's going to be a 100. 
No, it means in my life, some of the things that I get a revelation of and I'm bearing fruit, some of them, they'll be 30-fold. Some of them will be 60. Some of mine will be 100. I've got my strengths and I've got my weaknesses. And in my weaknesses, I may not bear as much fruit, but I ought to be bearing some fruit. But where I've got it together, where I'm good at, I ought to be bearing a hundredfold. Again, the focus is on me. How am I walking this out? Now, here's the, here's the real danger. And I, I, I'll be honest with you, when, when the Lord led me to this, I, I resisted. Because if you've ever noticed, and I have been accused more times than I can count about believing in one saved, always saved, and the ones that accuse me of that are usually angry because they're afraid I'm giving people a license to sin and live any way they want to, and they're still going to make it to heaven. Well, I don't believe in one saved, always saved. And for sure, if you think you can live any way you want to and bear the fruit of the flesh or the, the works of the flesh and still make it to heaven, not a risk I'm willing to take. But, Matthew 7, I just read verse 20. By their fruits you will know them. This is verse 21. This is the warning. And I preach eternal security, which is not the same as one saved, always saved. And I preach it hard for one reason. You can't walk in the Spirit if you're not confident of your own salvation experience and you're not confident that God's not going to throw you out the first time you sin. You have to be secure in who you are in Christ. You, that's the starting point for doing any of this stuff. That's why I preach it so hard. But there is also the other side, the flip side, verse 21. Not everyone who says to, says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and he will reply to them, depart from me, I never knew you. These are people who think they're Christians, they're even walking out some of the power of being a Christian, and they're not saved. I don't know how that works. I'll be honest with you. That baffles me. And yet... Jesus said it, so I know it must be true. That's why when I read all of verse 13 through verse 20 of Mark 4, the parable of the sower, I have to examine myself because I don't want to be in that group. I don't want to face Jesus when He comes back. And He says, I said, Lord, I did this for you. I did this for you. I sacrificed this for you. And He said, I never knew you. Meaning, you were never born again. You were never my child. That would be a tragedy to think you're on the way to heaven and you're not. How do you make sure? You go back to the Word. You go back to the Word. And I can guarantee you the number one thing that you have to do, you have to realize that, and I know Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace. Yes, that's a, but there is also a part where you come before the throne of grace and you realize He's God, I'm not. He's holy and I'm filthy. If you, you can never get so holy and such a revelation of, of um, God's holiness on the inside of you and how He's in you and you are in Him that you don't realize that you still have the capacity to be worse than Hitler. You can make Hitler look like a choir boy. 
Every one of us can do that. I have the potential to be as evil as any creature that's ever walked the face of the earth. And the day I think I can't is the day I'm on shaky ground. But then I also have to have a confidence that when I do come before Him and I say, God, oh Lord, I have done it again. 1 John 1.9 is not an excuse to sin. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card that I can do anything I want and God will just look the way and say, nah, no big problem. It's a real problem. Because every time I sin, I get farther from Him and I'm costing somebody. Somebody needs to eat that fruit of my life. And if I'm not bearing that fruit because I'm off doing this, then they're going to be lacking. And I don't want to get to heaven and, and realize when I see what history could have done. You want a picture of true humility? And I'm going to finish with this last statement. Someone asked, interviewed Billy Graham, and this was 10 years ago because they thought, better get this last interview in before he dies. Little did I know that he had another decade ahead of him. But they ask him, when you look back at your ministry and your life, what do you see? And he just kind of grabbed his head. And he said, I did so little when God gave me so much. That's a humble heart. That's a heart that knows who his God is. And knows that even though he may have preached to millions, and he may have seen millions get saved, it wasn't him. It was not him. It was the Holy Spirit working through him and he had very little to do with it other than he just surrendered and let God work through him. That's why we, it, it's that paradox. We need to not be so self-critical and looking inward so much that we always feel condemned and always think that, oh my God, I, I, we went to a, a church one time and this guy was part of the praise and worship team. And they stopped at the end and he just looked around and he says, you all pray that I make it in. And that you could tell it was a sincere, desperate cry. I don't want to go to hell. And I looked at him and I thought, dear God, I wouldn't want to live that way. I want to know that I that I know that I know that I'm making it to heaven. But I don't want to get so cocky that I think I'm making it to heaven because I'm something. Because I ain't. I've met me. Wasn't a pleasant experience. And if you really want to know the real me, you could probably ask my wife or my kids. Except I've sworn all of them to secrecy. And I better be nice or they'll rat me out. We need to move from, from information to revelation and then take that revelation and walk it out in our lives to where we bear fruit. Because there are people out in our world, in our, our lives, that need that fruit. That's, that's where we get our life from. You go eat an apple. You go eat an orange. You eat a bunch of grapes. That's your source of life. Well, we are the source of life to those people. Not us, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming out of us. And when they eat that fruit, when they get blessed, then that gives us an opportunity to say, you know why this is available to you? This, you know why I can do what I'm doing? Because I know Jesus. It's the only reason that I can do this, is because I know Jesus. And I'll help you meet Him if you don't know Him. That's the whole reason not to point to us and say, look at this tree, man. 
I, I, I as, as a kid, I worked my first real job where I got a paper check. wasn't just dad or grandpa giving me some money for doing some odd job around the house that I should have done anyway. My first real job was working in a peach orchard picking peaches. And I remember the old guy, because at, at some point I worked early enough that they went in and they were trimming the peach trees. And I asked him, I said, how do you know when you've trimmed enough branches that that tree will bear a lot of fruit? He said, it's the cat rule. I said, the cat rule? He said, yeah, you take a cat and you throw it up in the top of a peach tree. If it can find a limb to grab on before it hits the ground, you haven't trimmed it back enough. And I looked around at that orchard. The ugliest bunch of trees you've ever seen in your life. They were just trunks with these scraggly limbs hanging out. And I thought, wow, how's that? But I'm telling you what, those few limbs that were left, when, they, when the peaches came out, oh man, they were fat, they were juicy. That's what God's telling us. You trim your life down. I don't want a thousand limbs doing a thousand different things. Trim your life down to doing what I've called you to do. It'll only be a few things. And you're going to look at it and think, this doesn't look very good. But when you bear fruit, they're going to be big and they're going to be sweet. And people will be attracted to them. Then we get a chance to share the gospel. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.